Good morning. <laughs> really want y'all to know what we're doing. So, um, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Jack Blankenship. I'm one of the elders here at Remedy. Uh, glad to be with you this morning. Uh, we will be in the book of Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans chapter 8. Last week, we began a two-part series um, called Battle Lines about the battle that we wage in our hearts against sin. Um, it, it really was kind of one of those things where we, we, we took a few minutes from Romans chapter 6 and we opened up and we saw that sin is a profound enemy um, and really our greatest enemy. And in Romans chapter 6, we were called to fight against sin, not fight other people, not fight other belief systems, not fight our culture, but we were called to fight the very sin that's in our lives. But what we did last week was we spent almost the entire time looking at this kind of definition of of what our enemy is and who it is we're fighting. And that's what we were dealing with last week. Um, And what we want to do now is we want to say that even in the midst of the difficulties of sin, even in the midst of fighting an enemy that's within that doesn't easily go away, an enemy that in Romans chapter 7, Paul comes out and he just cries out and says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do is what I do. Who will save me from this body of flesh? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul comes up and he shows us there's this enemy that is living within us, and it's a daily and battle. It's a battle we will have for all of our life, but it is not a hopeless battle because ultimately it has already been won by Christ. And so we don't come into this battle feeling like there's no hope. We don't come into this battle wondering if the end it will be won. We come into this battle knowing that it will be won. And that's a pretty good feeling. To go into a fight and know how it's going to end up. But here's the reality. We're going into a fight knowing how it's going to end, but it's still a fight. And when you're in a fight, you get a bloody nose, and you get bruises, and you get knocked down, and you feel like maybe the outcome you thought was going to happen isn't going to happen. And so what we have to do is we've got to constantly remind ourselves not only of the victory, but then what we have to do is we have to say, this is the victory, but I'm called to a fight, not as a civilian bystander watching someone do my battles, but I've got to go to the fight. So what I want to do is I want to say, how do we fight? We know who our enemy is. And we know that though the battle is hard, Christ is for us. But what now? What do we do? And that's kind of really what I wanted to do. So I wanted to come to this text and I wanted to say, all right, Lord, I see it. I see the enemy. I see that you're with me. I see that Romans 7 tells me there may be times when I feel like I'm not going to win, but you've promised victory. So Lord, okay, what do I do now? How do I move forward? How do I start the fight? And so I, was gotten, I got really excited. I was like, man, Romans 8 is going to tell us how to do this fight. But what i got to tell you is that even as I read this text countless times, I feel like as I was studying it, what I thought was the answer really wasn't the answer. It was even better than I thought it was. So what I want to do is I want to read Romans chapter 8, verses 11 through 17. Now, I encourage you, there's a reason why people in 
history have called Romans 8 one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. They would call it the Great Eight. Um, So if you have time later today, maybe go back and read all of Romans chapter 8. It's so wonderful, encouraging. But this morning, we're going to focus in on verses 11 through 17. Verses 11 through 17. So what I'd like to ask you to do is, if if you're able to, if you would stand with me as we read the Lord's Word. Um, And then what I want to do is I'm going to pray and we'll dive in. So let's read Romans 8, verses 11 through 17. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are coming to this text not as people who have it figured out, but as people who are in need. Not just in need to have a sermon this morning to to, to kind of get us in a right worship mind. But God, people who are in need of fighting the battle with sin that will come up in the middle of this week, one night this week, a time when nobody's looking, a time when we feel like we have nothing. So Lord, we pray not just that this would be a time for us right now, but this would be a way in which we can see and understand your word to empower us all throughout this week and even the rest of life. And we ask this for Christ's glory alone. Amen. All right. So the thing that stood out to me as I was reading this passage, so I told you I'd, I've, read, I've read Romans 8 a bunch of times in my life. I, I love Romans 8. Such a great passage. I, at one point in time, I tried to memorize Roman 8, Romans 8, but memorizing Scripture is a very weak point in mind. Just going to be very transparent with you right now. So, I mean, I got all the way down, I think, to verse 13 or 14, and then I was pretty impressed with myself, and then I guess I just gave up. But I need to go back. I need to, I need to memorize it. But in Romans 11 through 17 here, the thing that stood out to me as I read this the, other, the time when I was preparing the sermon was that in those seven verses, I don't know if you realized it or not, but Paul references the Holy Spirit seven times in those seven verses. Did you catch it? So it says in verse seven, if the Spirit who lives in you, through the Spirit he will, he will give us life. We are uh, we put to death by the Spirit, all who are led by the Spirit, for you receive the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit bears witness. And so what we see is all these times in Romans 11, uh, 8, 11 through 17, the Spirit is there. And if you were to read Romans 8, all of it, what you'll find is not just like there's one up. There's lots. I mean, Paul is just, just lavishing on us this language of the Spirit. So what we've got to do before we get any further, we've got to ask the question, what do we mean by the Holy Spirit? 
Now, for some of you, you're like, okay, I got this. Let's keep moving forward. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to just kind of take the chance that everybody knows what I'm talking about. So I want to be very clear here. We believe that the Bible teaches there is one God, but this God exists in three persons. These three persons have always existed. God is not the Father in the Old Testament, the Son, while Jesus was on the earth, and then the Holy Spirit. Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed from all of eternity and always will exist in perfect harmony. Yet not three gods, but one God. Each is fully God, and yet each is distinct. And we actually see this Trinitarian language in verse 11. So if you look at it, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead... So we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Father, which is the Him, and then we have Jesus, the Son. Father, Son, Spirit, all right there. So Paul, even in, this, in this, this passage, is bringing out this Trinitarian language. And this is important for us because Jesus, in the book of John, referred to the Spirit as another helper. He told his disciples, it is good for you that I would leave because I will ask the Father and he will send another helper. This is, you'll see some, some theological language. They talk about the, the Father and the Son, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the Father is sending the Spirit, but Jesus is asking him to send the Spirit. Both are coming to the Spirit, and he says he's another helper. Now, this, this word helper, uh, one of my professors in seminary uh, kind of made this real vivid. And with this language of, of battle lines, I think it actually works in well. We kind of see the Spirit, this another helper, this paraclete, the paraclete, the one who calls alongside. The language is almost like a battlefield medic. And so we're wounded, our legs are busted up, we can't go anywhere, and the medic comes alongside of us, and what does he say? It's okay, I'm going to get you out of here, but here's what you got to do. You got to stand up. Now we got to move together. We got to go over to that pile of rubble. Let's go, keep going. You're going to be okay. There's comfort, there's truth, but then there's also, here, let me help you move, let's keep going. And so what there is, there's comfort and there's help. You're going to be okay. Here's where we got to go. Step up and do this. Move forward. And so the Spirit comes alongside us when we are damaged and when we are hurt and in the battle. And He comforts us and then He moves us. He doesn't just say, man, that really stinks about your leg. Well, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get over there. I can't do anything for you. So I'm going. You'd meet me over there. He comes alongside of us. He comforts us. He helps pick us up and He helps us to move forward. And so this idea of the Spirit here is what Paul is saying. He's the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to comfort and move us. So why am I talking so much about the Spirit? Well, here's where I get a a little more transparent with you. I've already told you I'm not really good at memorizing Scripture. But also, when I read this passage, most of the time, what I want to do, what I plead to do, is to come to a passage and let it tell me what it is I need to say. But every now and then, I will go to a passage with an idea of what I need to be looking for. And when I came to this sermon, when I originally was going to prepare it, I was coming to Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And my desire was to come to this text and figure out what it means for me to put to death the deeds of the body. You see, it was a battle plan. The idea was, I've got to fight sin. I know I need to put to death the deeds of the body. And so what I wanted to do was find the steps I needed to take to put to death the deeds of the body. I was going off the language of the verse. But as I was looking at it and reading this, what I became overwhelmed with, that I believe God was showing me, that it's not if you put to death, but it is if by the Spirit you put to death. 
That was the key that I was missing because what I was looking for was four steps that I could take to make my life better. And what God was resounding to me in these seven verses is that it's the Spirit who empowers and moves in all of this. And what I want to tell you today is that if, if, if we can understand the enormity of the Spirit working in us and for us and through us and empowering us to put to death the deeds of the body, we will find the victory that we've been looking for. Because most of us, the reason why we get frustrated is because we are doing exactly what I was trying to do. Just find the way that I can muscle through and win it when the entire time the Spirit is the key. You see, he's not backup. He's not plan B. For the battle, he is the general, the supply chain, the air assault, the infantry, everything. It's all by the Spirit. And so what I hope this morning is as we open up this passage and we look at who the Spirit is and who he is for us, what we will see is the power to defeat the sin in our lives. So that's where we're going. So just last week, as we looked at who our enemy is, this week what I want to do is I want to look at who our ally is, who our champion is, who our hero is. So two questions I want to ask as we're looking at this. If I've talked about all this, two questions I want to try to answer. One, who is the Spirit for us? And two, how does, how does the Spirit fight for us? So who is the Spirit for us and how does the Spirit fight for us? Now, that kind of sound funny language with that very first question. Who is the Spirit for us? But I don't want to just know who the Spirit is. I want to know why is it that the Spirit is for us. Like, so for us, who is the Spirit? And as this passage shows us, I think there's at least seven things from this passage that we need to get, that we need to understand. And let me caution you this morning, one or two or maybe more of the things that I'm going to say, if you have been a follower of Christ for a very long time, some of these are going to be things that you know, and it's going to be easy for you to mentally assent to those things and then want to move on. But what I will tell you is that's part of the reason why we struggle, because we get used to the truth. We get used to who God is for us. And when we do that, we don't understand the magnitude of what we believe. It's just like, yeah, I got that. Let's move forward. And what we do is we move past the power that is in the truth of God's word. So don't do that this morning. I plead with you. And some of you in this room may not be followers of Christ. Maybe this is your first time in a church. Or maybe it's your first time in a really long time. Or maybe you don't understand what this Christianity is all about. Because what you think it is, is is being a good person and being like Jesus. And then everything will be okay. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is the truth of Christianity is I am so broken. I am so messed up. There's absolutely nothing I can do to make my myself right with God, and there's nothing I can do to conquer the sin in my life. But Christ has done that for me. That is why Christ died, not just to give us an example, but to pay the payment for our sins that we could not pay. And so everything that I'm saying this morning is rooted in the idea and rooted in the power of Christ dying for us. And maybe this morning, maybe for the first time, you will hear and understand the good news 
That though you are wretched and broken, Christ loves you and he died for you to redeem you from the empty way of life and to save you from the wrath of God that you and I and everyone else rightly reserves and he offers hope for you this morning. He doesn't say clean yourself up and then I might love you. He says come to me while you are broken and bruised and messed up and I will redeem you and then I will make you whole. That's the hope in which we're operating this morning. So who is the Christ? Who is the Spirit for us? Well, the first is this. In verse 11, he dwells in us. So look in verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. I mean, this is one of those things that we as as Christians, those who grew up in the church and have studied, we know, yes, we're indwelt by the Spirit. Do you get that? That's not just like metaphorical language. You are indwelt by God himself. God himself dwells within you. That in and of itself is an amazing fact. But this is even more powerful when we remember what we talked about last week in Romans chapter 6. When we looked at Romans chapter 6 last week and we saw that there's sin dwelling within us and there's this, root, this enemy that's rooted deep down deep in, inside our heart. And we want to root him out. We don't know how to do it. But not just living there is our enemy. Living inside is our champion. The spirit dwells inside of us. We can fight sin because the Spirit isn't just far away barking orders telling us what to do. He has set up residence inside of us, empowering us and overcoming the sin within us. The Spirit, God himself, dwells within us. But not only that, he dwells in us to give life to our mortal bodies. So verse 11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Again, as we start thinking about the conquering of sin in our life, we remember that our enemy who lives within us wants to bring death, wants to bring destruction, wants to destroy everything that God has done. And so he wants to bring us down. Our sin wants to destroy us. But the Spirit not only lives in us to empower us, but to bring life. And it's not a hopeful. He will bring life. And don't just think of this as the pie in the sky, by and by. Yeah, I know one day I'll I'll live with Jesus. He comes to bring life now. This is good news when you're on the edge This is good news when you failed 9,000 times just this past week and you're looking like, I will never conquer this. There's death waiting, aching in my bones and the Spirit comes and he lives within us and he says, I will bring life to you. That is good news. So the Spirit dwells in us. He gives life to our mortal bodies. Third thing is this. He's the means to death for sin. Romans 8, 13. If, according to, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's a not-so-secret weapon. We don't have to, we, it's not hidden. The Spirit, if by the Spirit we put to death, that's the means. It's right there. It's not just hopefulness. He will do it, and he will bring about our sanctification or our growth in holiness. He will make us more like Jesus. Fourth thing is this, he leads us. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
This is really good because I don't know about you, but there's times I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to keep fighting. I don't know how to keep moving forward. It seems like there's no way to move forward. It seems like I won't know what to do. But we don't have to figure out things on our own. The Spirit leads us. He uses the word that he inspired, that he um, made sure that everything was there that we need. He made sure that nothing extra was added. He made sure nothing was taken away. The Spirit, God himself, who inspired this word, takes this word and he puts it into action in our lives and he shows us what to do. He shows us where to go. And I'm not just talking about, okay, Holy Spirit, show me what job I need to take. Yes, he will do that. But he will show you where you're loving sin. He'll show you where you're treasuring things that aren't Christ. He will show you, and then he will show you the way out of that. You see, sometimes we want to reduce the leading of the Spirit to these big mountaintop decisions in our life. But the Spirit's going to lead us through a succession of Tuesdays that nobody knows about, nobody cares about, nobody sees. He's going to continually walk with us. And not only walk with us, but lead us. Verse 15. He's not only the spirit that indwells us, gives life to us, is our means to death of sin, leads us, but he's the spirit of adoption. This is so good. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Amen. God, when he gave us his spirit, didn't give us the spirit of slavery of hopelessness and despair and just kind of, well, maybe everything will be okay. We didn't get that spirit. But we received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So I want you to picture for a moment the orphanage. Children who have no hope, no way of getting out, no way of anything. They're, they're just there. Maybe somebody would come and get them. And the Spirit coming in and saying, you're mine. You're coming to my family, and there's nobody that's going to take you away from me. You are mine. That's good news for all of us, but that's really good news for some of you in this room who've been abandoned, who have felt like nobody wants you, felt like nobody cares for you. And you may have both parents, and you may have a family, You may have everything on the outside that looks right and it looks good. But deep down inside, you just think nobody wants you. And the spirit of adoption is there to remind us that if you are in Christ, you have been chosen by God. You've not only been chosen, you have been adopted. And if you've been adopted, you are an heir. With all rights, all property, everything pertaining. And not just a mansion in the sky, but the holiness of God that he will give to us. He is the spirit of adoption. But not only that, the spirit comforts us. So look at verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And where is he comfort in there? Well, here's the deal. If you are struggling with sin, there are going to be times when you're going to start saying, I must, I must really not be a child of God. God must really not love me because I've got all this sin that's going on in my life. I can't keep going. I, I just, God, I, I have to doubt it. There's no way that God loves me. There's no way I miss child. And when you are truly Christ, the Spirit comes along inside of you and he says, yes, you are struggling. Yes, this is sin, but you are mine. And there's no greater comfort 
no greater comfort that even in the midst of our failure and even in the midst of our rebellion to know that we are still God's. And so as the Spirit comes, the Spirit comforts us. Last one is this, verse 17. He bears witness in our, struf- in our struggling. This is very similar to what we see in verse 16, but there's a nuance to it that I want to see. Verse 17. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the thing is, as we're following Jesus, there is a time when we will, we will suffering. And you know, there's times where we're going to do things wrong. And the Spirit convicts us that what we've done is wrong. But never with guilt, never with shame, never with condemnation. The Spirit sternly and lovingly points out our sin, reminds us that we are His, and calls us out of it. This is comforting, because even though you've sinned, He says, you still sin, but you're mine. And then it's challenging. You are mine, so stop sinning. You see, the comfort that comes there is sometimes our suffering is not because we've sinned. And so the Spirit comforts us in that and reminds us God is not against us. Christ has absorbed the debt for our sins. We are not being punished by God. But it's not just comforting in the sense of when we suffer for not doing right, the Spirit there with us. Sometimes we suffer for doing wrong. Sometimes we bear the consequences of the sin in our life. And what the Spirit does is he comes alongside us. He reminds us of what Christ has done. He reminds us that God doesn't punish us. But he also reminds us that the discipline of the Lord is to make us more like Christ and to pull us out of our sin and to turn away from our sin. And it is comforting to know that God will never leave me even when I rebel. So these are the different aspects of the Spirit who is for us. It is encouraging, it inspires hope, but there's another question. The other question is, how does the Spirit fight for us? This is just who, but the question is how? Because if it's by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, so now we know about the Spirit, but it's the by part. How do we get there? How do we get to this Spirit putting to death? There's there's a guy who lived, I don't know, over 500 years ago, super old, super dead, and super smart. Um, His name was was John Owen. Um, And John Owen uh, wrote, he wrote lots of books, and some of them are are hard to read, and some of them aren't as hard to read. But he wrote this one book on Romans 8, 13, um, called On the Mortification of Sin and the Life of Believers. Okay, back then they weren't into catchy titles. It was just kind of like long and big words. Um, but but it's, it's, this book is not real big, but the whole book is based off of Romans, 13, Romans 8, 13. Um, and he spends almost the entire book talking about the, the wretchedness of sin. And it's like the last chapter or two, he talks about how the Spirit fights for us. Um, and, so I wanna, and so I just thought, man, this is so good. I'm not going to try to re, reinvent the wheel. Owen is smart. And I'm just going to kind of, in my own words, tell you what he says. And he says four things. One, this is how. First, the Spirit convinces us of sin's evilness. And what I mean by that is, and what, what Owen was saying, it's not just the Spirit convinces us that sin is bad or that sin is wrong. But what he does is he convinces us of the pure evil and rebellion that even the smallest sin is. That's the first thing the Spirit does. We, in our minds, kind of have a gradation of sin. 
And there are some that are more heinous in their consequences and in the way they have effect on others and the way that they're openly rebellious. But even the smallest sin is evil in the sight of the Lord. And what the Spirit does first and foremost is he convinces us not just that we've made a small mistake, but that sin is evil and heinous and rebellious in the sight of God, even the smallest one. So he convinces us of the sin's evilness, but then secondly, Owen says that he convinces us of Christ's ability to conquer sin. So the Spirit shows us how evil sin is, but then he shows us us and convinces us that Christ can conquer any and every sin. Now this is the necessary correlation because sin is terrible, but Christ can conquer it. And it's not just a recognition, it's a true belief and understanding, but we can't stop there. Because if we just say, sin is terrible and evil, Christ can conquer it, we're still left in kind of the the land of maybe, and what the Spirit does is not just show sin is evil, Christ can conquer, he shows us, and he says, this is Owen's word, creates an expectation of relief to come from Christ. This is good. This is really good because it's not just that sin is true, Jesus can conquer it. The Spirit works within us this expectation that Jesus will conquer sin in our life. He points to to Titus 2.14, which has become a verse that's just, just ransacked me lately. It's so good. He's talking of Jesus and he says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is why Christ came. To redeem for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus didn't just come and say, well, I'll open the door. Maybe some people will come in. He came for a people, for himself, and not just any people. People who are zealous for good works. And so the reason why Christ came was to redeem us, to make us like him. And if that's why Christ came, Christ will not fail. And that is hopeful for you when you're stuck in sin. And it's hopeful for me when I'm fighting sin. Because Christ not only can defeat my sin, Christ wants to defeat my sin. And Christ will defeat my sin because that's what he came for. And so what the Spirit does is he shows us our sin is bad. Jesus is greater. And Jesus wants to defeat your sin. And to know that Christ wants to overcome this in my life is a great and wonderful thing. And the fourth thing he says is this. That the Spirit applies the work of the cross to our hearts. Now this this might get a little bit kind of philosophical, but just just kind of hang with me. See, the idea there is that Christ died 2,000 years ago, somewhere that's halfway across the world. He died, paying the price for my sin. But the Spirit doesn't just say, hey, know that that's true. The Spirit takes what Christ did and applies it to my heart. The Father sent the Son, the Son died, and the Spirit takes what the Son did and applies it to our hearts. He takes the gospel that we know and hear and makes it true in our hearts, makes it real, and takes what's done and applies it. Kind of like an antibiotic ointment does no good against an infection by sitting in the tube, but until it's put on the wound, the Holy Spirit takes the work of Christ and applies it to our hearts. Now, I don't know, you may be more like me, 
Um, and you kind of feel like, well, maybe this is not enough. You're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> but what do I do? Like, this whole thing was like, how do I fight sin? All you've been talking about is what the Spirit does. And what I had to understand is that I was kind of viewing my root problem, kind of what I talked about last week, the things that I do and not the heart. Because the battle is, yes, against those things that I do, but it's ultimately the battle of the heart on the level of desires and belief. There are actions we will end up taking to take the the sins out of our life. But the battle against the sin in our life is one that is done on the level of desires and belief. So what we must do is fight the true enemy the way the Spirit fights for us. And that is how we do just that. It's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to stop doing things. We've got to get down to the heart of the matter, and the Spirit alone can get to the heart of the matter and apply the gospel deep down in our hearts. So as we fight, and he moves within us, and he takes and he convinces us the evil of our sin, convinces us that Christ and Christ alone can can pay the price for our sins, convinces us that Christ wants to, applies it to our hearts. As he does that, and as we start getting into that, there are actions and things that we can take and do. So what do we do? Well, um, I think I'll try to demonstrate the first couple of things like this right here. Um, so, ah, oh man, I just messed it up. Let's see if I can get this going right here. All right, that's a candle, just in case you in the back can't see it. All right, it's a candle. This is a match. I'm going to light the candle. Okay? All right, so now we're, we're sitting there, and we're, we're, looking at this, we're looking at this candle. The candle's burning. It's not, very, it's not very bright or anything. But the first thing I want to say is we don't want to quench the Spirit. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says that we can quench the Spirit. And so quenching the Spirit, in the middle of 1 Thessalonians 5.19, is this language of quenching the Spirit and the idea that it comes in the middle of this list of all these sinful actions that we do. So these things that we participate in that are against God. And by doing that, what we do is we quench the work of the Spirit. We just take and put His work out. Because we treasure sin and we treasure the things in our life. And so the, one of the ways that we don't want to do this is we don't want to treasure and value sin. We want to listen to what the Spirit is saying. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to quench the Spirit. We want the Spirit to burn bright in our hearts. And so we don't quench the Spirit. But what we do is we add fuel to the flame. Y'all ready? All right. Jordan was going to grab a fire extinguisher. Is he, is he in here? So what we do is we add... No, I'm just showing you. I, I preached a sermon at BCM, and what I did, I actually had somebody standing with a fire extinguisher over here, and I put goggles on, and there was literally somebody in the front row who ran to the back of the room because they thought that I was going to do that. But uh, I'm going to put that out because we're not... All right. But you see the picture? What we do, our sin, what our sin does, and it comes and it quenches the, the spirit. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to quench the Spirit. We want to fuel the flame of the Spirit. And and the opposite of, of falling into sin and trusting and loving those things is for us to say, 
I'm not going to love and trust those things. I'm going to love and trust the Lord. So what do I do? I want to I feed myself with his word. I want to pray. I want to engage in other spiritual disciplines. Because what these things do, they crowd out the sin in our life. And as they crowd out the sin, the spirit comes and fills us up. And the flame is ignited. And it burns greater. Just as I have, if I had taken this lighter fluid, and if I had been crazy enough to stand back and to squirt it at that flame, there would have been this eruption of flame that's in there. Now here, this is not what I'm telling you. I'm not telling you, okay, start reading your Bible, start praying and start fasting, and then all of a sudden you're going to be the most super Christian in the world. But here's what I am telling you. If we live in and tolerate our sin and just kind of walk through them every day, let them just be part of our life, don't really fight against them, we work to quench the spirit in our life. But when we engage in battle, we find the spirit comes and he moves within us. So the Spirit does all of these things. And so as the Spirit convinces us and starts working on the deep parts of our heart, we begin, we begin being empowered by Him to stand against these things, the, the things that quench Him, the things that put Him out. And so as we do that, we start putting them, and then the Spirit fans the flames, and the flames grow larger, and it begins consuming the sin in our life. So we don't want to quench the Spirit. We want to add fuel to the flame. Third thing is this, we want to live by faith. Faith is not just belief. Faith is belief in action. So as the Spirit works these things in our heart, our belief will lead to action. See, all of this is coming together. I'm saying the same thing kind of three different ways. As we believe the truth that the Spirit puts in us, as we believe sin is wretched, as we believe Christ can save, as we believe he wants to save us, and as he applies it to our heart, we will believe it, and that believing will result in us taking steps of faith, taking steps of action, fighting against things, stopping looking at those websites, stopping having conversations we don't need to have, stopping gossiping, Stopping believing the lies of whatever it is, those things in our life that are the, the results of the sinful heart that Christ has come to redeem and save us from, we will believe what the Spirit says and we will start taking steps. And that is how, by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. It's all the Spirit working in us and we act in faith. The other thing we must remember is that we've got to remember the, the promise of verse 11. Verse 11 starts with the word if. Now the word if, I mean, we're, this is contingent here. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. I want to remind you here of what I reminded you last week. We are not talking, again, about ways to make yourself right before God. We're talking about people who've been redeemed by the gospel. People who've been redeemed and now who want to honor Christ, who want to live in the way that he's made us to live, who want to follow him and obey him and glorify him, not so that he will love us, but because he does love us. And so the danger is that you could take what I'm saying and try to make things right between you and God or distort it into, this is how I become a better person. Friends, let me tell you, this is how God works in us to become the person that he wants us to be. I want to close with a quote from Owen. He kind of takes uh, this whole thing, Romans 6, 7, and 8, and kind of puts it together. 
is really good. I am a poor, weak creature, unstable as water. I cannot excel. This sin is too hard for me and is at the very door of ruining my soul. And what to do I know not. My soul has become as parched ground as an inhabitation of dragons. I've made promises and broken them. Vows and engagements have been a thing of naught. Many persuasions have I that I have got the victory and should be delivered, but I am deceived so that I plainly see that without some immediate assistance I am lost and shall be prevailed on to an utter relinquishment of God. But yet, though this be my state and condition, Let the hands that hang down be lifted up, and the feeble knees be strengthened. Behold, the Lord Christ that has all fullness of grace in his heart and all fullness of power in his hand, he is able to slay all these his enemies. There is sufficient provision in him for my relief and assistance. He can take my drooping, dying soul and make me more than a conqueror. He can make the dry, parched ground of my soul to become a pool and a thirsty, barren heart as springs of water. Yes, he can take this habitation of dragons, this heart so full of abominable lust and fiery temptations to be a place for grass and fruit to himself. There is hope for the battle in Christ. The Spirit shows us the way and empowers us to do so. I'm going to ask the band, if they would, to come up. and We're about to move into our time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And there's no better way for us, I think, at this moment to remember the supper than to remember that what we celebrate and what we remember is Christ coming to slay the dragon. In Genesis 3, 15, God pronounced a curse on the serpent and said, there's a seed of woman coming and you will crush his heel, but he will crush your head. And it's just as Christ is pictured crushing the serpent of old, that dragon that seeks to bring us down, he also is pictured as the one who crushes our sin. So this morning, if you are in the throes of fighting against sin, look to your Savior, the one who has defeated already and won the victory, who has given you his spirit to empower you and encourage you and strengthen you in the battle. If you feel like you're about to give up and be overwhelmed, be of good courage and hold fast to Christ because he is for you. And he not only can save you, he is saving you and he will save you. So as we take a moment to prepare, maybe you need to meditate. Maybe you need to think about that. Maybe you need to spend some moments rejoicing in Christ or trusting in him. As, we, as Jordan leads us, I'm going to come and prepare the table. There's wine and juice. If you are a baptized believer of Christ, we ask you to participate with us. If you're not, we ask that you simply observe and see as a tangible picture of what Christ has done. So there's a table in the front and the back. So if you, when you're ready, you can come get the elements, return to your seat, and we'll take them together. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that is found in Christ. May we never trust in ourselves, and may we live by the power of the Spirit for the glory of your name. We love you and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.